You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. So good. Good. Well, hey, um, I'm, I'm going to double down on what Jesse just said. Coming from somebody who uh, worked with high school and middle school students for close to 20 years, uh, I got a friend here that actually did a big bulk of that with me, um, Steve. I don't even think we're getting into heaven because of that. Like, it, like, working with kids, you really do deserve a special place in heaven and a crown. Now, listen, I'm not saying that you earn or work um, towards your salvation. If I was, I would probably not be able to preach this message. I'm just saying, really the whole thing, and they got a little twisted, is help out with kids. It's fantastic. They're awesome. I don't know why I had to, like, you know, bag on middle school kids. It's probably because I have um, one of them. Anyways, hey, we're going to jump in. My name is Randall, and um, I'm one of the leaders here, and I just love these moments. I hope you guys, too, too. I believe that as we gather, um, it's just a beautiful rehearsal for what's to come. So we get to experience glimpses of that now as God's people gathering, worshiping our God. Um, And that's like the future for us is not only like Hub City, but like all of the redeemed worshiping God, which sounds fantastic. This is a sliver of that. So we're going to jump in. Um, We are in a series. So last year we kicked off the year um, with a series in Exodus, right? And then... um, for those of you that weren't here last week, because we did gather, we know that was terribly complicated. Um, we were actually here, we kicked this series off. Um, and, and what we said as, as we were praying through that and kind of looking at like how to kind of work through the book of Exodus, like it's filled with so many moments and so many events and stories that you could say like, well, we could just like the plagues, right? You could just go like, hey, we're gonna teach through all 10 of these plagues and blow them up and expand them. And that takes 10 weeks. We knew that we didn't want to be in Exodus for a year. So we found like kind of the through way to like seat those events as they are important to the book of Exodus and the rest of the whole story of the gospel. Um, but we didn't like walk through and blow up the Ten Commandments. Um, we just we, we showed where they fit. And so what, what we said um, is that, hey, wouldn't it be unique if, if maybe next year we expanded that out and just took a look at these ten words that God gives to his people and how they're formative for his people. So that's where we're at. That's what we're doing. One of the other things that we said was, was so important as we prayed and thought about this series was that we don't like want to just treat it like a series on the Ten Commandments, which, which you can do, right? Because it's a story and it takes place in the midst of a story and it has a place to it, which is Mount Sinai. And we wanted to, just like Moses does, the author of the Pentateuch and, and this Exodus story, we wanted to, to frame it up as really the central and defining event of the entire Torah or Pentateuch, right? And, and not just the Torah, but really see how it's foundational to the entire Old Testament. And of course, We want to see its implications span across into the New Testament. We want to look at how Jesus interacted with these laws, these commands, and how he processed them, and then how he engaged with them and taught them to his disciples. So Sinai has far-reaching implications 
to today. And so um, we wanted to make sure that as we dug back into this, that, that we don't misrepresent. It's, it's all too easy to misrepresent what the commandments are there for. And, and, and last week we dealt with this. We, we wanted to have a baseline conversation, if you weren't here, just about like one of the, one of the major ways that, that we misrepresent or, or we like interact with these commandments is that we treat them as if they are like salvific, right? Um, now, I didn't have to say that word, but I just thought maybe that would be like kind of impressive, right? Um, meaning this, like they don't save you, right? You don't follow them in order to be saved. We said this last week that these commandments, God's laws, right? Because it's not just 10, it's like 600 and some laws that you find throughout the Torah. These laws were never meant to be a condition for relationship with God, right? They were just a sign or an indicator that that relationship already exists. They confirm that a relationship already exists. So God does not give his laws to his people until a relationship is established with them. Because I think when we dislocate the commandments from where it appears and what's around it before and after, then that's where we're always going to land. I think it becomes so easy to misrepresent what they're for, right? So um, in other words, we, we treat the law as something the Israelites had to do in order to earn their salvation, of course, um, is a, like an unfortunate misrepresentation of what the law is, what this whole story is about. Now, all of this is resolved by simply learning and like kind of re-immersing ourselves in the story and the events that take place. So we're not actually going to teach the commandments once again today. Now, I know I said we would, but as we kind of formed this, I was like, no, we, just, we need one more day to, to, to stay in the story. Now, for those of you that are like, I just came for the commandments, I would say, chill, Ruli Rulerson, a little bit. We'll get there. It's all right. Which really none of you are like, yeah, let, let's teach more rules, right? Um, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to pick it up in chapter 19. I'm going to pray one more time for us, and then we're going to jump in, okay? Father, we thank you that we as your people can gather in your presence and with each other um, to worship you, to esteem you, to value you for who and what you are. You are our God. You have formed us as a people through the good news of your story. And now we live in that story. We thank you, Father, for who you are. May your gospel go forth and transform our hearts and minds more and more as you form us into your image. We thank you in your name we pray. So in chapter 19, some of the pieces that Jesse just read, she didn't read all of 19. We kind of edited it down to um, some of what I wanted you to kind of hear, some of what we're going to talk about today. Israel, right? They have made this like long and, and difficult and arduous pilgrimage, really an escape from slavery in Egypt. And they show up at Mount Sinai, right? And Mount Sinai is where Yahweh will give them the law. But as we saw last week, God's elaborate, de elaborate um, deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, it took place way back in chapters 3 through 14. And if following the laws were a prerequisite for salvation, then we should expect Moses 
when he shows up in Egypt, right, if it's like, hey, God's going to save you, but first he's going to give you these laws, we would expect Moses to say like, hey, everyone, I've got good news for you, Yahweh, and they'd be like, who's Yahweh, right? And he's like, come on, keep up with me here. Well, Yahweh, he, he plans to set you free from your current situation, which is you're enslaved in Egypt. But there's just one catch. You're going to have to agree to live by all of these rules. And if you just sign on the dotted line saying that you agree to these conditions, Yahweh will then spring into action. Who's in, right? But that's not what happens. Instead, God appears to Moses way before this in the wilderness, and and he reveals his personal name, which is significant because up until that point, Moses had no idea who Yahweh was. He'd been more than likely worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. And so then God reveals, my my name is Yahweh. And and then Moses responds like, well, okay, like what do you want me to do? And it's all done through this like very weird event, which is like God shows up in the form of this bush that's on fire and begins to speak to, to Moses. And he tells Moses like, hey, I've got a very particular message that I want you to take to the Israelites, my people, that are enslaved in Egypt, your people. So if you jump back to chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, this is that message. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, to which they would have said, the who's it? The what? The who? Right? Like they're, they're not really able to locate who this God is. And, and then really as a people, because what he's about to say, like he's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And at that point, the people are like, who's that? Because they've been enslaved for 400 years, and, and some of those names are like a distant, like generations have passed. It goes on, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and a land flowing with milk and honey. See, there's no conditions there. And there's no indication that the Israelites have to do anything to arrive at this land of promise or to produce their freedom. It's God saying, like, I'm going to do this for my people. So it's so important to grasp where God doesn't tell them that he's going to put this great rescue operation on pause until they, like, go around their homes and, like, collect all of their idols and statues and graven images and then, like, have a bonfire with them. Nor does he request, like, a a detailed Excel spreadsheet of all the specific sins they've committed, right? And, And here's why. God's deliverance of his people, it's rooted in his character. It's rooted in his promise to Abraham. And and it has nothing to do with their own righteousness. And and, and so what was the promise that God made to Abraham? Like, we we always have to go back to that. And maybe for some of you, like you're introducing yourself to this the first time. Well, standing there, Abraham, under the desert sky, right? God shows up and begins to speak to this guy, Abraham. And you have to imagine this, like he's in the desert and there's not much, like you can just look up and there's no clouds and there's just a crystal clear sky. And so all you can see is like stars, right? Beyond stars, beyond stars, as far as your eyes could focus. And God says like, hey, your family, like just look up at those those stars, like try to count them because your family is going to be larger than what you can see here, right? 
And, and then he also promises him a prime piece of real estate for them to, to like plant roots in and to establish him as a people and a nation. That's all the way back in Genesis 15. So a lot of things go, I guess, wrong up until the point that we get to Exodus because you've got God promising Abraham that he's going to produce from him this great family, this great nation that's going to be a blessing. But the story that we're looking at, they're nothing but a refugee group of people fleeing from Egypt, right? So, so where's the promise, right? Well, we have to see this, right? Because the fulfillment of God's promise is to Abraham, right? Which is the people's like great, 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 great grandfather or something. Well, the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham is actually standing now at the foot of this mountain, right? Which at this point, only Moses had seen this mountain because the fulfillment of the promise is the people, it's them, right? They are the fulfillment of a portion of God's promise to Abraham. They're now this huge mass of humanity that are now being formed from this like ragtag, disparate group of people. They're not all Hebrews that are a part of this story. Remember, Egyptians came with them. Slaves from other nations came with them. But now God's forming them into a people, right? And so like even in that, God gives us a glimpse that his promise to be fulfilled is for all people, not just the Israelites, that God would form a people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. And so then, as God moves on, right, you see in this story, really, other than just trusting in God's plan of rescue and redemption, they had nothing, they had done nothing to get themselves there. They had done nothing to free themselves. So, so whatever Sinai represents, it, it cannot represent a condition for salvation for the people. Israel had already been delivered when they arrived. In order to understand what the law at Sinai is for, we'll need to take seriously like where it's given and when it's given and the events before and after it. Because Moses, the author, wants us to pay attention to this, right? Because the law and Sinai, its effect on Israel is seismic in nature for them. It changes them as a people, it redefines their identity, it redefines their purpose and their mission. So remember from the Exodus account, as they flee Egypt, again, they're just this multitude, this throng of people, former slaves, some Egyptians, people from other nations, refugees and slaves seeking a better future and freedom. But they're not a nation yet. They have no identity, no culture, no God, no country. But as they leave Sinai, Man, there's just something different. Like one thing is they become this like well-disciplined and, and organized army. They're a nation now with a God and a promise of a country, an identity as a people, and a mission to live out. And so God uses that like space in between, like living in Egypt and then arriving at Canaan, right? Or excuse me, leaving Egypt and arriving at Canaan. That is the space in between that God's going to use to create change in them. But the in-between spaces, right, the, the spaces of like already and not yet, man, they're already, always difficult and challenging for us 
as humans, right? Like, just think about this. Like, what's a great space to identify that, right? Like, just being a middle school kid. That's an in-between space. Like, for some of us, if you can grab those memories, you're like, well, I'm not a kid anymore, but I'm not an adult yet. I'm not even a high schooler. That's kind of a weird in-between space. And they're always challenging. There's a particular concept dedicated to describing that space of like already not yet or the in-between spaces. It's called liminality, right? And it comes from the word lemon or lyman, which, which can be translated like threshold, right? So think literally like when you're standing in the threshold of a door, you're neither inside or outside. That's a liminal space, right? An airport is a great example. Like no one lives at an airport unless you're Tom Hanks in a weird movie from like the 2000s, right? So, so everyone is just passing through that space on their way. They're coming from somewhere. It's not their destination. They're going somewhere else, but it's a space that they have to go through before they get to their destination. So the concept was really developed within the field of anthropology and it, directly began to apply to describe a stage in like rituals that change someone's status or identity. So every human ritual in the world includes an element of liminality, right? So uh, from, from a coming of age rituals to like funerals, like there's this space of like already and not yet and, and in between. And that space of in between is is most often disorienting for us. A lot of times it includes being like stripped of like identity and things and, and, and like everything that would have been provisioned for you up until that point. So you think about the, the Israelites, like how they were provided for. All of that's gone now, right? They're just out in the desert wandering, going like, and you hear them complaining and grumbling, right? At, at one point as they're making their way to this scene, they're like, hey, listen, like we're, we're starving. It would be better for us to go back and die in Egypt than starve in the desert. So um, it's this space that creates trust. It creates um, like kind of a dependency because everything else has been removed from your life. And so that space then disorients us. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's unpredictable. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't even know what's going to happen to us in between that space. So, so we, 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 we usually want to just like avoid it, right? Like if I can avoid that space, listen, like in some ways, well, I don't want to go like too crazy with this or keep bringing it up, but in some ways, like you might even argue like the past couple years potentially might've been like a liminal space for some of us, or, or it, it, like, honestly, like, I think it was a space for the church to kind of deal with some stuff. I think that God is going to say, like, hey, as we're coming out of this, I've got a church that has a mission for this space, and, and, and I hope that God's been changing us during this space. Like, we've been removed from everything that we know, right? And so those spaces um, become uncomfortable and, and they're unpredictable, right? And if we're honest, like how many of you over the past couple of years are like, if we could just move through this as quickly as possible, right? For Israel, as they wander and, and journey through the wilderness, fleeing Egypt and empire, heading towards Canaan and promise, that wandering is a liminal space for them. It's already and not yet. It is the in-between space. And it's not just a pass-through for them. It's the place, it's the space that God's going to work on them and in them and change them into something that they are not yet. The wilderness, and specifically Sinai, is the place that God will make them who they are to be. It changes them. But those spaces 
are always difficult and disorienting, which is why it's completely understandable. It's why you hear them complaining and grumbling. Either like, let's just go back to where we were, or like, can we just get on with it as quickly as possible? They're impatient because they're not paying attention to what God is doing in those uncomfortable spaces. So they want to move through it as quickly as possible and get on to what's next. Small problem, God's in no rush to get them out of that space at all. He's like, I'm fine with where you're at. Have you ever felt that? Like you're in a space that's unbelievably uncomfortable and you just want to get through it or you want to go back to what you know, but you can just sense God's like, no, I'm cool with it. Why don't you just stay right here and I'm going to do something in you or do some work on you, right? Because for them, for the people and for God, like he knows what, what they don't know. They're not ready yet. They're not ready for what God has for them because it's in this vacuum that, that Yahweh speaks to his people and he invites them to begin walking in a new direction by trusting in him. And he offers himself as the solution to, to all of their needs for, for leadership, for provision, for protection, for guidance. So, so this space at Sinai, you can see how, how it's so crucial for them. In the wilderness of Sinai, they, they are free now. They're free from like the lifeless, mind-numbing, like finger-bleeding, forced work of Egypt. They're no longer day after day forced to make bricks. So, so you can imagine like leaving that behind, right, is a space for them to go like, that's all we've known our entire life. It's crazy to think that you would find comfort in that and want to return to that, but there's a familiarity there, right, for them. But, but that's gone now, so now they have nothing to distract them. So in their isolation, maybe they're ready to actually hear the voice of God. Having their old identity and all of those cultural rhythms like stripped from them, they are now ready to become what God intends for them to be. So this wilderness becomes God's classroom for his people. He has work to do in them that can only be done in this state of like dislocation because it, 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 what it does is it breeds their trust in him and it forms their identity. That's what God's doing. Trust me and I'm going to form for you who you will be. And on top of God's agenda, right, for this very fortuitous pit stop, like why are we stopping at the foot of this mountain, right? God's agenda at Sinai is this, right? Because we're going like, let's get to the law. Let's hear it. God's agenda is not necessarily the law. God's agenda for his people is worship. He wants to know, will a people be formed that will worship me? Now, in the Old Testament, worship meant this. It meant presenting God with an animal as a sacrifice, right? And this sacrifice would then be a demonstration of repentance and gratitude for his provision. This is what the Hebrews intended to do in the, in the wilderness. Like, let's find some animals and let's offer them up. But now they're away from their former masters and this oppressive forced labor. Something changes because they, now they'd be able to devote themselves fully to the celebration of God's freedom and deliverance for them as a people, as salvation. So, Yahweh brings his people out to do what? To worship him. 
right? He's kept his word. They've been set free, and now they've come to do what they intended. Now, they didn't have much of a relationship with this God, this Yahweh yet, but God's going to, to show them. Next week, we're going to talk about this. God's going to show them that he is to be worshiped and how they are to worship him in those first two commandments, right? And so they, they've come now to this space, and, and all they've known is like, okay, we've got to offer up this form of worship, these sacrifices, which is us trying to get right with God, to, to, to maybe like, if we can do this thing, we can offer enough, make the, make the sacrifice righteous enough, then, then we'll, sit, we'll get set right with God. So in the process of that, God's going to relearn for them how to honor and worship him. They discover in this their vocation, their calling, and it's not what they expect. So, so God's first message to them at Sinai lays the, the groundwork for all the rest of his instructions to them, and it sets a new trajectory for them as a people. And if we miss it, if we miss it, we'll get the rest of the story wrong, right? It, and we'll get all of God's story wrong. So, so Moses heads up to the mountain, right? So we, we get to this point where we get to chapter 19, and Moses is back at this space where he first met Yahweh, and God really just gets right to the point, like right out of the gate. So, so chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, he says, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, so this is just a few months, like maybe three months since they've left Egypt, that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, You yourselves have, been, have seen what I did to the Egyptians, right? Not, not what you did, what I did, and how I bore you, not yourself, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That moment right there for, for the people, I mean, if you imagine everything that you've known up until that point, right? You've got this very confused idea of like, when I come to worship deity, right? It's a lot. There's a lot of gods for me to worship. Do I get to kind of pick and choose? I don't even know some of the gods. And then there's this other thing that like my whole life, everything I've known is I've been told the person that I can identify as like the person that kind of runs this whole empire, right? Pharaoh, I'm actually supposed to also worship him as a god, right? So it's terribly confusing. So this moment here for God, for Yahweh, is his chance to introduce himself to his people. This is the first time that God's speaking to his people. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to his people through Moses, but now he shows up and he's actually speaking to his people. And what he says is foundational for them, right? When Yahweh responded, like go back, when he responded to the cries of the Israelites when they were in Egypt, like think about that. He doesn't blame them for their predicament. He, he didn't tell them that they were naive or spineless or like gullible for finding themselves in this situation. He said, that they were a treasure, that they were set apart for a special purpose. And, and we miss the grace in this if, if we lift the Ten Commandments out from the rest of the story. We'll miss the grace in them. Because we, if we just were to show up and go like, hey, we're going to take ten weeks and teach the Ten Commandments, read them, try to figure them out, apart from the story, what do you miss? 
you miss that the commandments, that the laws of God that he established, like this is how we're going to have relationship, right? You miss the fact that that story is a story of rescue and redemption and deliverance. You just lift those out and you got a set of rules, but when you remove them from rescue and redemption, then they become something completely different, right? They're, they're just a, a set of rules and there's no life in them, right? But before Yahweh gives his rules to his people, he wants them to know really one simple thing. He's like, listen, I'm going to give you a lot of rules, but I need you to see them as grace and loving, and I need you to know this. You, you are mine, like you're precious to me. You are my treasured possession. There's this Hebrew word, segula. I have no idea. That sounds like how you're supposed to say it. It's appropriately translated in this passage as treasured possession, right? But it begins to help if we understand like it's kind of broader meaning and, and use, it's even just in the Bible, right? It appears eight times in the Old Testament. Twice, it's very literal. It just refers to the king's personal treasury, right? So this king valued, his most valued and treasured possession was his wealth, his money, right? So it's a little weird because now all of a sudden, like you got God, God saying like, like you're my segula, right? You're my treasured possession. So like what is normally talked about is like money and wealth. So he's referring to a people, right? As my treasured possession. The rest of the occurrences are more figurative then, right? And it's always referring to Israel and the, these other occurrences as God's treasured possession. So, so they are now transformed, right? In this moment, as God speaks to his people, right? You have to understand this. They were a people that were formed as slaves, right? And to the empire that they were enslaved, they're, they're, they're a disposable people. They're a that you, you can throw, you, you lose some of these people to death. To, 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 it's okay. There, there's always more that we can find, right? But, but there was no inherent value to their identity before this. And so they move from being a disposable people to a people that are now a treasured possession. And not just a treasured possession of like Moses, but a treasured possession of this God Yahweh, that they're just meeting for the very first time. They're like, oh no, like, like this God loves us. They'd probably never heard that from any other God that they'd worshiped. They'd probably only heard from any other God, placate me. I'm what's valuable. You're okay. Now placate me as you worship me. But then they have this new God that's forming them as a people saying like, actually, I created you and loved you and you are my treasured possession. So the immediate context in Exodus 19, 5 through 6 then describes what roles God's possession, these people, what are they expected to play, right, in relation to the rest of the world as, as a result of kind of their new identity, right? Like, here's who you are. Here's your new status as a people. Well, what are they to do? What are they to be? And it goes on to say, like, they are to be a kingdom of priests. You're to serve as ambassadors to the nations. You're to be a holy nation set apart for God's purposes. In this book, The Mission of God, Christopher Wright says this about the relationship between their identity and their role, their new identity and their new role. He says this, they have a role that matches their status. The status is to be a special treasured possession. The role is to be a priestly and holy community in the midst of the 
of the nations, right? So they're, they're going from slaves to that, to a treasured possession, which is incredible. And, and we have to see this. Their identity and their purpose and mission that God gives them are so woven together. You can't lift those things apart from each other. They inform each other. Now, none of these laws, this is important, none of this is like forced on them. Listen, again, we, we, we talk about this a lot. We struggle. We struggle with rules. We struggle with laws. Like I, even me, like I try to be a guy that just goes like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna show up and we'll learn the rules. But there's a lot of rules. Like I, I'm gonna say, I, I love Camp Tadmore to death. And I took a lot of students to Camp Tadmore over every years, or through the years of doing youth ministry. And there's a thing that happens at camp, right? It's the rules video. And like you, like you start camp that way with the rules, right? Um, what's the number one rule of camp? There you go, right? It's, it's a good rule. So I hear those rules. Like one of them is like, keep the ground on the ground, right? And I start looking on the ground because I hear that. I start looking on the ground. And I go like, I can, I can probably pick that rock up and throw I probably should pick that rock up and throw it, right? So there's something in me that, that go like, you force rules on me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to break them. But, but their response is not that here. That's what's so interesting is, is that these rules are not actually forced on them, right? It's easy to kind of perceive like, oh, God's going to be kind of heavy-handed with these rules. But, but you have to pay attention to the people's reaction to this new like arrangement. Look at verse 7 and 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that God had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, ah, oh, we hate rules. Don't give us any more. No, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So they sign on willingly to this. And unless the people forget who God has chose to lead them, God arranges this like kind of strange but very like public demonstration of Moses' role. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you or believe you forever. So like God's saying like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to come in this like thick cloud. I'm going to talk to you, Moses, but it's going to be a sign for the people that I'm with you. So what you're going to bring back down to the people, they're not going to hear it as this is coming from Moses. This thick cloud is going to mean, no, this is God's word to his people. So the people get ready for this dramatic display. What do they do? They wash their clothes and hopefully themselves too. Like they probably hadn't done much of that in the past couple of months. They've just been fleeing. And so this is this scene. This is the means of their consecration as, as, as this establishment of Moses as their leader and the confirmation of that. And as the people respond to that, it's actually a consecration moment for them. They're going to now to be set apart. They're going to witness the glory of God and that's consecrating them or setting them apart. Now, only Moses was allowed to approach God by climbing the mountain and Aaron at some point in the story, right? So here's the scene. Moses describes, right, what he sees up there. And it's fantastic. There's thunder and lightning and clouds and smoke and an earthquake. And it, it, it struck the people, of course, as they're watching this, like their leader's gone, Moses is gone, and they're seeing all of this. And of course, there's just this awe and there's this fear. And, and there's just this reality that they're going, like this God is actually showing up. He's making his presence and his power known to us. And in the midst of this like awe-inducing scene, 
God speaks directly to Moses, who then mediates God's message to the people. Like This should put to rest any lingering question about who's in charge, who God has established as a leader. It's, it's Moses, right? So then Moses comes down and he delivers another message to the people, preparing the community to hear directly from God. And that's in verses 20 through 25. We're not going to look at all that, but here's what we need to understand. God speaks this time, once again, directly to the people. And, and then what does he say? Well, he's given them now these rules, which brings us to the part we said that we were going to preach. And, and most of us probably like want to kind of skip over. It's like, oh, more rules. But after Exodus 19, we're going to step into the weeds of this, right? And it's, we're, we have to see this. It's not just 10 laws. Like, that's all we're going to teach. But for 20 chapters, right, if you remember this from the Exodus series, for 20 chapters we're given detailed instructions about what's allowed and what's not for the people, how to build a tabernacle, how to, how to dress as the high priest. And what's amazing about all these instructions and all these rules is the people, again, they actually cherish it. They value it. They, they love the law, right? It's inscribed in their story. The longest psalm, Psalm 119, is really just one long song about the gift of the law. We don't write songs positively about the law, right? We, saw, we write songs about breaking the law, right? You think I can only drive 55? Well, my name's Sammy Hagar. I will just prove that to you, right? That's what our songs in relation to the law are about. But Psalm 119 is one huge, it's fascinating, it's actually written as an acrostic. Um, it's super interesting. But like, listen to what the author says. Joyful are those who observe his rules and seek him with all their heart. I have rejoiced in your laws as in riches. I walk in freedom for I have devoted myself to your commandments. How I delight in your commands, how I love them. Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. As, as pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. So the people actually saw these as good. They valued them and and. It's such an interesting space for us to go like, well, that, and we're going to find out later, like Moses, how, how, he, how he viewed them. Um, it's, in, it's in Deuteronomy. He speaks specifically like his approach to this. So we have to understand that as you get to Psalm 119, it's just this beautiful place where somebody took so much time, right, purposefully made a whole acrostic out of it, right, which is lost on us in the English, but if you look at it in Hebrew, it's an acrostic, to talk about how much they love the law of God. I, don't, I can't think one of our songs that reflect that as we sing those, right? So the people loved the law. It was the best thing since sliced manna for them, but why? Like, why would the people of Israel consider these rules as a treasure? What's the big deal? Well, to understand their enthusiasm, we have to understand this one point thing from historical context. The Israelites lived in a time when people were desperate to know what the gods were saying, right? But since the gods didn't, like, show up often. They weren't in the habit of like speaking audibly to the people. Here's what happened, right? The priests were trained. This is not of Israel, just of any kind of formed religion in the time of Israel, the time we're looking at this story. 
priests would then be trained to like read the signs that were kind of left behind from the gods in the natural world. It looked like this, right? Sometimes they would develop these elaborate rituals in which the gods could reveal things to them. Maybe they would drop like some oil or flour into water and try to like read the results of that, or they'd sacrifice an animal. They'd remove all of its organs and kind of study its bloody guts to go like, hey, there's a message from God in this, or they'd watch for like strange births or newborn animals with defects. They'd study the stars. They'd contact the the dead, which never turns out just good for anybody if you try to contact the dead. Just ask William, Bill S. Preston, and Ted Theodore Logan. It doesn't go well for them. Really, whatever it took for these, for, for them to go like, I just want to talk to God, right? So whatever it took to like forecast the future, discern what the gods were trying to say. Of course, usually they couldn't figure out what the gods were trying to say because those gods were not actually trying to say anything because they're not real, right? But, but Israel is just different. God took the initiative. He chose them. He rescued them. He established them as his people. And now that God is speaking audibly, they heard God speak to them. And then to- he tells them exactly what he expects. There's no more guessing game for them as a people. This is why it's so valuable. The rest of humanity was just going like, it's just a guessing game to this God that we worship, what he wants us to do. But now Israel has specific instruction. God spoke. There's no more guesswork. What makes him happy, right? What does God want? They see it. It's all clear for them, which is why the people breathe this sigh of relief over 20 long, boring chapters of law at Sinai. It's why they value it. It's why they treasure it. And remember, the Israelites had already been rescued from Egypt when they're given the law God is not saying to them, do all of these things and I'll save you from slavery. He saved them first and then gives them the gift that goes with salvations, which is this, it's instructions on how they are to live as a free people. Moses and the people, they realize this. They're like, man, this is so valuable. We are now a people that have a personal God that speaks to us that we can worship. And so they realize that true freedom requires clearly communicated boundaries, right? They recognize that the grace of God's law is a gift to them. Israel's laws then become, God's laws to his people become the guardrails for them to which they can live in and flourish as a people. It becomes these boundaries for them to know what their mission is as a people. It it sets them apart as this distinctive way of life that other nations can see And not just see them, but they can actually see what this God is like and what he expects. So their obedience expressed their covenant commitment, their newfound allegiance to Yahweh. And it it kept them in a position to experience the benefits of this covenant relationship with God. The covenant promised to them these wonderful blessings for the Israelites, a fruitful land, a huge family, an opportunity to represent God to the nations and to be a conduit for his blessings. And none of those privileges, none of those things, none of those realities for them could be realized if they were worshiping other gods or acting unloving and hostile towards their neighbors. See, their lives and their culture is, is meant to point others to God's character. They would need to reflect that character then in their relationship. So if they were allowed into their midst, right, into their culture, into who they were as a nation, if they allowed greed and lust and idolatry and all the things that we're about to look at, if that had a foothold in their community, God would confront them and he would call them to repentance. And so these laws 
right? We're going to see, man, they're going to go on. They're going to relate to every single facet of Israel's life. Business, agriculture, cooking, diet, dress, worship, governance, relationship, health, even like how you were to like have a yearly calendar, right? So why is it so detailed? Because being God's covenant people meant being transformed in every area of their life. So it's through the law that God gives the people to, to live a different kind of life, one characterized by discipline and self-giving love. So just imagine a community where every member actively works to love and protect their neighbor. Like, what would that look like? Do you imagine living in a space where, where every person is a part of your community actually actively work to love and protect their neighbor? That's what God is establishing here for his people. So keep this in mind as we move ahead, as we enter into kind of the maze of instructions at Sinai. The law is a gift. It's good news. The people treasured it as good news. So should we, because Yahweh speaks and he sets up these boundaries so that his people can experience the joy of living in freedom. Here's why this story is so important to us as a people, because it's tempting to just leave it in the past, read it occasionally, have some fun with it. But the story of Sinai becomes then a small glimpse. It becomes this mirror image of a greater redemption, a greater salvation, a greater rescue, a greater people formed through this. And so that's why we're going to look at it. That's why we should respond today, because Sinai for us becomes as a people where God formed us, because we see it's the place where God gives Israel instructions to say, like, here's what you're supposed to do. You're actually supposed to, instead of like do battle and destroy your neighbors, you're supposed to love them and love them in a way that that love reflects me and my character and my love for them. So let's respond to the good news of the gospel today. Let me pray, and then we're going to respond in a few different ways. We're going to sing. Um, we would ask that you take a few moments to pray. Um, you can give today, and then we get to go to these tables. We're going to invite you to go to the table and receive the blessing of this meal that Jesus has prepared for us. Let me pray. Let's respond. Father, we thank you.